If we're not talking about vulnerability in this conversation, we're not talking. That is a place where leadership can really, really be transparent and say, you know what, we have missed this and we don't necessarily know how to deal with it. That is Kim Crowder, a diversity consultant who spoke to us following the tragedies of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, as well as the ensuing protests. At the time, she expressed cautious optimism about the likelihood that companies as a whole might change, looking at diversity, equity, inclusion, not as a nice to have, but as a core strategic aspect of their business. I don't know if your audience is familiar with Angela Davis, but she is certainly an activist and a freedom fighter. And she said she'd never seen anything like this where the whole world got involved in a movement at this level. Now, that was 16 months ago. And as we thought about her comments just recently, we started asking ourselves, well, was that optimism warranted? Lots of promises were made, but how many were actually kept? Have things really changed? for good this time. Well, according to some interesting data we've been reading, they have, but perhaps not in the way we might have imagined. A recent survey commissioned by FutureForum, a research group created by the tech company Slack, asked workers in North America about their opinions on how they wanted to work now that the pandemic seems to be easing. And what they found is that black workers preferred remote work by a vast margin. 68% compared to just 50% of white workers. The prevailing reason, according to the survey? Working away from the office made black employees feel more accepted amongst their coworkers. Upon reading this, we thought, well, this is a data point we need to understand better. So we reached out to our guest on this pod to talk about it. Her name is Adjua Ose. She's a clinical psychologist and diversity consultant based in Brooklyn, and she joins us at the Nexus. You speak a little bit on racial microaggressions. Talk about the impact that they have on the well-being of people of color. It's kind of really referring to everyday slights or insults or ways in which people of color might be invalidated or offensive behaviors. And the reason it's called micro is not to say that somehow these are small or insignificant. It's just these are very commonplace. You know, they happen often within daily interactions with white Americans. And oftentimes they might not realize that they said or done something that was racially demeaning. In the immediate kind of aftermath of racial microaggressions, kind of like, well, how do I respond? Like, what do I say? You know, that kind of just confusion about, is it worth it to bring up? Did they really mean what they were saying? Am I even allowed to be offended? We even also have noticed the way in which it can just contribute to feelings of like powerless and hopelessness, intense emotional reactions, even physically, how it can affect people through kind of somatic reactions, where they're feeling like your heart racing, or just kind of feeling that stress that you're carrying through your day as you try to figure out like kind of how to even address this. Perhaps you could sort of explain or elaborate as to the benefits or the positive impact that remote working has had on people of color, in your opinion? I think it's maybe reduced the possibility of racial microaggressions, just allowed particularly Black employees to feel like they have a little bit more sense of control. Kind of giving an example, if you imagine like a Black woman and every time she comes to work, someone's commenting on her hairstyle and her appearance. And on the surface, it might seem like, okay, that's a nice compliment. But underneath, there's kind of like a hidden message with racial microaggressions that can be denigrating, that could suggest that somehow her hairstyle is unprofessional 
were questionable whether she should be wearing this to work. And so kind of with the remote work, I imagine that it allowed an individual to establish a boundary. Maybe you didn't have to turn your camera on. When we were having meetings, remember we were very kind of intentional and focused on a particular topic. So you didn't kind of have those instances of small talk. You could kind of avoid that in a way. I'm wondering if perhaps maybe this is just uh, remote work great in the short term, but kicks a can down the road in terms of resolving those issues. Yeah, I agree. I don't think remote work is the absolute solution. This is a multi-layered issue and problem. And I think it's important to recognize that we can't kind of go back to pre-pandemic standards, ways of working before, and assume that we can come back and operate as normal. I think it's a time to really embrace change and to kind of recognize that's not one solution. I talk a lot about white supremacy culture within the workspace and organizations, which looks at the superiority of white people and this assumption that certain values and standards within the workplace are assumed to be norms. So just to give an example, kind of like a sense of urgency that is often applied to projects. How many times I've been told this needs to get done right away and then I turn it in and it's like, oh yeah, that thing. And it's like, okay, but you know, was it truly urgent? You know, why aren't we allowed to kind of take time and embrace thoughtful decision-making? So I think what happens for Black, Indigenous people of color is oftentimes we might be working in settings with certain norms and standards that go against our own core values when it comes to work. And there's not necessarily like a culture of appreciation for other ways of working and different models. So I think it is not only looking at the benefits and value of remote work, but also looking at what are the values within your organization? What are things that you're assuming to be norms and standards that might work against Black employees? What I gleaned from the article with regards to the survey that Slack did, it seemed to imply that there's perhaps a lower likelihood for people of color to believe that their employers would keep the promises they were making post-George Floyd. And even if they did keep those promises, those changes wouldn't have a whole lot of positive impact. How much do you agree with that? Yeah, that cynicism that I point out, I almost call it like a healthy suspicion. I think after the murder of George Floyd and other instances of police brutality, particularly for Black people, this was not one-time incident. We have heard of so many other moments uh, that have happened. And so we're not only reacting to the murder of George Floyd, we're reacting to the murders of many other people or even our own experiences of racism. And so there was a lot of talk, I think, around diversity and inclusion. And I think also with the pandemic, there was kind of like this moment of sitting still where people really couldn't turn away from what was happening. And so I think it was more kind of in this collective consciousness. So I think there was a question of what was the intention behind these initiatives. Many of these things, just in speaking to some of my clients, have kind of fallen by the wayside, have been forgotten about. It's almost as if things have just returned back to quote unquote unnormal. And so I think there was some concern about the lasting impact and the intention behind these initiatives. You know, Adjoa, we've been working with a lot of clients on their mental wellness programs, and in particular around uh, stigma reduction, um, you know, normalizing those conversations around one's struggle with mental health. And a big question in these projects is, you know, how do we ensure that this isn't just a fad? How do we create rituals around having these discussions and then sustaining them? What I'd love to do is put the same question to you. 
what can companies do to ensure that addressing diversity, equity, inclusion, and anti-racism stays top of mind and you know becomes muscle memory, especially for leaders who, let's face it, are for the most part still largely white and largely male? Examining the cultural norms and expectation within the organization and looking at the ways in which white supremacy culture is manifesting How can we change that? There's a sense of power hoarding that somehow those who are in influential positions or positions of power know what's best for everyone else. Are you creating spaces in which your employees can feel heard, in which they feel valued, in which they can actually have input? And so I think really taking kind of a needs assessment before trying to implement changes, you need to know what's kind of happening at different levels within your organization and thinking about ways of being inclusive and valuing your employees' input rather than seeing it as an attack or feeling defensive, that this is valuable knowledge that we can use going forward. Another thing I think about, you know, with remote work is thinking about flexibility. Are there ways in which we're being rigid? Can people benefit from hybrid work? Can people have more flexible schedules? I know we've been talking about Black employees, but, you know, just recognizing people don't live single issue lives. You know, people could be parents. Someone could have a disability. You know, are we creating a workspace that can be inclusive of that? And if you're having kind of in-person moments or meetings, kind of approach it with intention. You know, not just like, okay, we're scheduling this because we're scheduling it, but what's like the meaning behind it? What's the purpose? You talked about that power hoarding, sort of that top-down, one-way transfer of information that is perhaps typical of a lot of organizations. I'm wondering how optimistic you think this particular relinquishment of power that has come as a result of all of these things, how likely do you think it'll last? That's a really good question. I want to be hopeful. Again, I have that healthy suspicion about me. I talk to people sometimes about the way in which, okay, what is it that you're adapting to? What are you accepting? And what are the ways that you can resist? I think if we keep it visible and we just don't kind of assume or kind of step back, I think the more that we push for these critical conversations, whether they're happening in workplaces, whether they're in articles or journals or in podcasts, I think the more that we kind of keep it within our collective consciousness, I feel hopeful about that change. But it is hard. There is kind of resistance to change. I think there can be defensiveness. I think there can be kind of minimizing around the values of employees. And I think our values are very important the work that we do and just recognizing that I think it would actually contribute to more productivity. People are wanting to show up and feel like they can be seen and be their full cultural selves. That's something that's benefiting everyone. Adjwa, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Oh, no problem. It was such a great discussion. Are you an employer looking to introduce new working models into your business? Or are you trying to discover and implement new ways for your people to work together and in particular to feel more accepted by each other? If that's the case, then let Nexus help. For more than two decades and through much of the pandemic, we've been supporting clients with all kinds of important initiatives, including DE&I and new ways of working. And we can do the same for you. Find us at nexuscommunications.com. That's N-E-X-U-S communications.com. The Nexus is produced by Alexa Paveo and Mertz Jaffer with editing and sound design by Justin Moy. I'm Chris Nelson. Thanks for listening.